Good morning and welcome to Grace Point Church. My name is Randy Willis. I'm a pastor for Connections and Spiritual Formation. And Mike asked me to teach this morning because he spent this week with one of our global adventure teams in Boston helping plan a new church there. And I know what you may be thinking. Wait a minute. I thought you had to have a passport to go on a global adventure. I thought you had to get on a plane and fly across an ocean. Not so fast. There's people in Boston that need Jesus too. So we have global adventures both domestically and internationally. Now, I doubt there very many of you have ever heard of the name Jim Rohn. And frankly, until a couple of months ago, neither had I. Jim was an entrepreneur. He was a businessman. But I think what he may be best known for is that he had a way of making statements that were memorable and that were quotable. And I ran into this one just a few weeks ago. It says, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. You're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And if you're like me, you're already doing the math, trying to figure out who's in the top five here. And am I really like them? And listen, I don't know how scientific that observation is. Okay. But it might help explain why married people can begin to look alike, right? And even if you're British royalty, you start looking alike. And I know you're supposed to marry within the, within the royal family, but that's going a little bit far, I think. And then perhaps it even helps explain why after some time people can start to look like their pets. You might want to look around. I'm just, I'm just saying you might just want to take, take scope of who you're hanging with. And the point, of course, here is that who we surround ourselves with deeply affects who we are and how we act and what our worldview is. Now, I have a personal confession here. I am a much better person after the last 36 and a half years that I've spent married to my wife. And if you know my wife, Denise, you know that's true. And if you think I'm kind of rough around the edges now, you should have known me before. And, or, or maybe it's better that for me that you didn't know me before. But today, we're not going to talk about the five people you spend the, average, the most time with. And we're not going to talk about your relationship with your spouse. I have one thing that I want you to consider this morning. And that is, what is your relationship with Jesus. What's your relationship with Jesus? Now, if you're not a Jesus follower, I'm not going to ask you to do anything this morning except to consider Jesus. But if you are a Jesus follower, I'm going to ask you to do more than just consider. I'm going to ask you to look deeply and lean in to this question. Can anyone tell that I'm a Jesus follower? Can anyone tell that I'm a Jesus follower? If so, how, how would they know that? Is it by what you say, what you do, how you act? Imagine with me that you were arrested and accused of being a Jesus follower. Would there be, any, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Imagine that they started interrogating your friends and your family and your neighbors, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Imagine they took your cell phone and looked what you were doing on your cell phone, or they took your computer 
Or they took your credit card and looked where you spent your money. Or maybe they had recordings of conversations between you and other people. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? And what, what do you think they would be looking for? I mean, are they looking for a Bible? Are they looking for church attendance? Or maybe they're looking for a character trait like compassion or generosity or patience or kindness. You know, that got me to thinking, is there one identifying characteristic that is distinctive to a Jesus follower? Is there one identifying characteristic that's distinctive to a Jesus follower? Because I think, I believe that there is. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Now, I'm wearing this shirt as a reminder that there are people in the world today that don't have to use their imagination for the scenario that I just laid out. This is the Arabic symbol for N, which in Syria and Iraq stands for Nazrani, which our translation of that is Nazarene. This is the symbol that ISIS paints on the homes of those that they suspect to be Jesus followers. And if they paint this on your home, you're given a choice. Convert to Islam or face the consequences. And you don't have to keep track of the news very diligently to know what those consequences are. In fact, they tend to make it worse every time they mete out punishment for being a Christian. It's more gruesome and more hideous than the time before. Now, very unlikely that anybody here will ever have to make a choice like that. But this serves as the backdrop for our time together this morning. Because as I read Scripture, over and over again, I see one identifying characteristic of a Jesus follower. And that's what we're going to explore today. And to help us, we're going to look at a 2,000-year-old narrative in the Bible. Now, we usually refer to the Bible as a book, and it's not really a book. It's a collection of books. It's a collection of different kinds of literature. In the Bible, you'll find poetry, you'll find prophecy, you'll find some personal letters, and you'll find history. And today, we're going to look at one of the history books, the book of Acts. Now, Acts is an eyewitness history of the first century church. This was written before Christians were even called Christians. They were just followers of the way. But we have an eyewitness history of that. Now, the author of the book of Acts is Luke. Luke was there for many of the events in Acts. And he, he interviewed eyewitnesses. He says he thoroughly investigated everything. And he wrote down for us, we now have a written account of that, that was written within 30 years of the actual events. And that's significant because if... Luke had chosen to embellish the events or leave some things out or put some things in that weren't really there. There were people alive when it was written that were also alive when it happened, and they could have refuted what he wrote. So we're going to look in Acts chapter 3 and 4, and I'm, let me give you the setting before we look at our story. It's only been two months, not two years, not 20 years. It's only been two months since Jesus was arrested and beaten and crucified and rose from the dead. 
And after he rose from the dead, he appeared to dozens, if not hundreds, of people, walking and talking and eating with them. And then suddenly he's gone again, this time ascended to heaven, and his followers are left wondering, what's going to happen next? And if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that there were, at that time, there were probably only about 120 followers of Jesus. And overnight, literally, that number swelled to more than 3,000. And so that's where our story starts this morning. So let's step into some first century history. In Acts chapter 3, it's about 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Peter and John, two of Jesus' closest disciples, are going to the temple to pray. And at the gate of the temple, there's a man about 40 years old. Now, he's lame, and he's been lame since birth, and he's at the temple gate every day begging from those that come to pray and worship at the temple. And when he asks Peter and John for money, we get to see the first recorded miracle of the early church. In Acts chapter 3, starting in verse 6, Peter said, I don't have any money, but I'll give you what I do have. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, rise up and walk. And then he grasped the man's right hand and raised him up. At once his feet and ankles became strong. Jumping up, he began to walk around. He entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the same one who used to sit at the temple's beautiful gate asking for money. And they were filled with amazement and surprise at what had happened to him. Now, many people had seen this man over the years. And when word spread that he had been healed... A crowd gathered, and Peter began telling them how Jesus, whom many of them had had a a role in crucifying just a few weeks earlier, how Jesus had actually risen from the dead and was, in fact, the Messiah that they'd been waiting for all these years. But instead of hearing me tell the story, let's look at what let's look at Peter's own words in, in Acts 3, verses starting verse 15. He's talking to the people and he says, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we're witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him, as you all can see. Now, those that were invested in maintaining the religious status quo, the temple leaders, and the priests and the Sanhedrin, they weren't too happy with this turn of events. The Sanhedrin was a 71-member Supreme Court. But Supreme Court doesn't even really do it justice because they had more power than the Supreme Court. They were the authority judicially, but they were also the authority religiously, and they carried a lot of political clout as well. I mean, these were the same guys that thought they'd done away with the Jesus movement two months earlier when they had Jesus arrested and killed. And so having someone like Peter stand up and claim that he'd been risen from the dead was rather problematic. But because of Peter's proclamation, the number of believers then 
By then it swelled to more than 5,000. And so this was a problem for the Sanhedrin. And so they had Peter and John arrested and they threw him in jail overnight. May have been the very same jail that Jesus was put in the night before he was crucified. So they know it's serious. Peter and John know that they may never be free men again. The next day, the Sanhedrin calls an emergency session and they call Peter and John before the court and they ask him a question and they said, by what power or what name, meaning what authority, whose authority, by what name did you do this, meaning the healing? And Peter starts in again. He says, if you're asking how this lame man was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. Now, as dangerous as that was to say to the people he was saying it to, we, we really have no appreciation for how extremely offensive verse 12 is. Peter's going on. He goes, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. Now, while he's saying this, Peter knows that all the Sanhedrin has to do is march down the street to Pilate and ask for a couple of more crucifixions. You know, two more of these things, and I think we're just about done with this whole Jesus movement. And yet Peter who ran away from these very same people just two months earlier when Jesus was arrested, suddenly isn't afraid. Peter looks him in the eye and he says, you murdered the Son of God. And more than that, you need to know that there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. What do you think the Sanhedrin's response to that was? I mean, given their history and the way they usually responded... Their response was extraordinary. And here we run into that one distinctive, for the first time, that one distinctive characteristic that I mentioned earlier about Jesus followers. This is the first time we run into it. In verse 13, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, it says, when they saw the courage, or your translation may say the boldness, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, you know, the reason they say that is because in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, Peter and John had not been to the official schools of the day. It's the equivalent of they have not been to seminary. And so the Sanhedrin was saying, how dare these ordinary, common, uneducated men come in here and lecture us? It says when they saw that they were ordinary, unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Think about that for a minute. They took note that these men had been with Jesus. We're going to come back to that in just a second. And then what I think is probably my favorite verse in this whole story, he says, but since they could see the man who had been healed was standing there with them, there wasn't anything they could say. I just, I just love the irony of, of the Scripture there. See, the Sanhedrin's conclusion was remarkable. They said the courage, the boldness of Peter and John came from being with Jesus. 
And if I can be so bold myself as to add a word in there, I would say came from being with a resurrected Jesus because Peter and John had been with Jesus for three and a half years and they had never acted like this before. But because they saw a resurrected Jesus, they had, they had boldness and courage and power. See, the Sanhedrin realized that an extraordinary transformation had taken place. From men that were scattered at, at the crucifixion to huddled in hiding in Acts chapter 1 to now standing boldly before the powerful, and I might say the all-powerful Sanhedrin and boldly proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. See, the Sanhedrin realized that a relationship with a resurrected Jesus was the difference. Let that sink in for a moment. The Sanhedrin realized that a relationship with a resurrected Jesus was the difference. Now, let's put pause on our story, and we'll come back to it in just a minute. Let me ask you again. What is your relationship with Jesus? You might say, well, you know, that's kind of hard to answer. It can be described in a whole lot of ways. It's really kind of complicated. And I agree, it may seem so. But I would suggest to you that there's really only a handful of possible descriptions of our relationship with Jesus. I'm going to let you self-determine where you fall. The first descriptor, I would say, is oblivious. You know, in Jesus' time, probably anybody that lived more than a hundred mile radius from Jerusalem was probably oblivious of Jesus. In an, in an era when the average person didn't travel more than 30 miles circumference of where they were born and news traveled by word of mouth only, then anybody that's probably lived more than, I'll, I'll say, a hundred miles from Jerusalem had no knowledge of Jesus. They were oblivious. And, and we can understand that. That's not difficult to understand. What's surprising is that even in our age of technology where everyone seemingly has a cell phone, even in the most remote villages of the world, there are still people that are oblivious to Jesus. When you go on one of our global adventures to West Africa or, or South Asia, you will likely have the opportunity to talk to someone who's never heard the name of Jesus. Not even once. If you tell them that I have a friend named Jesus, they may ask you to show, to show them your picture with him on your cell phone. They are oblivious. But since you're here today, even if this is your first time ever in church, you're not oblivious. You might be what I would call conscious now, of Jesus. Now, during biblical times, this would have probably been any of the Romans or all the Romans that lived in that part of the world. They were aware of Jesus, but he was just one of many political insurrectionists of the time. He was just another religious fanatic who came and went. And when he was gone, it was out of sight, out of mind. I mean, in the minds of the, of the Romans... Jesus' life was just a momentary blip on the screen of history. 
And there are today people living and working in northwest Arkansas who are conscious of Jesus, but they're unaware that Jesus desires a personal relationship with them. And maybe this describes you, and if so, great. That is incredible because you will find that Jesus offers forgiveness and love and mercy and grace like you have never known. Past oblivious and past conscious are those that might describe themselves as committed. In Jesus' day, crowds followed him everywhere. There were many that heard all the sermons and they saw the miracles and they ate the food and they had the full Jesus experience. And if you asked them, Dallas, they would have described themselves as, as committed. And that's where many Christians, many Jesus followers, many people that claim the name of Jesus, that's where many people live today. Attending church, involved, serving, and active. And you may put yourself in this category. But there's more, actually. There's another category beyond conscious and beyond committed. Because when Jesus' teaching became too hard to hear and too hard to understand, even the committed were gone. In John chapter 6, it says, From this time, many of, dis- many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. It doesn't say the hangers-on, the curious. It says many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. And maybe they said things, you know, like I used to be a follower, but Jesus just didn't work out for me. See, here's the thing. The safe line is right there. Everything to the left of that line, everything about Jesus feels safe. But over that line lies purpose. Over that line is where life has meaning. People see Jesus in those that are living over the line. They are what I'm going to call the transformed. See, the Bible makes two things perfectly clear. You don't have to change your life to begin following Jesus. But If you choose to fully follow Jesus, he will change. He will transform your life. Now, if somebody was to come to me and say, you know, I'm following Jesus, but it really, I haven't had to change my life very much, if at all, I would ask him, are you sure you're really following Jesus? Because Paul said it like this, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You're conscious of Jesus. Maybe you're committed to Jesus. But are you being transformed into something new? Or are you playing it safe? See, we created and and fostered a culture, a Christian culture of security and safety. We live in the equivalent of a of a Christian cul-de-sac. See, cul-de-sacs were designed because parents had fears about their children being so close to fast-moving traffic in their neighborhood, and so they designed a cul-de-sac to kind of protect them from those streets. 
Ironically, decades later, studies have shown that a cul-de-sac is, in fact, the most dangerous residential configuration there is. Because it turns out that children are injured by fast forward-moving vehicles nearly as much as they are by those that are backing up, which is precisely what happens in a cul-de-sac. They are being injured by the safety and the security that we created. (laughs) Have you ever considered that the very thing that you're trusting Jesus for, maybe safety and security, may be what's keeping you from experiencing all that God has for you? So where do you put yourself? Do you put yourself among the conscious, the committed, the transformed, When people see you, would they say of you like they said of Peter and John, I can tell that he or she has been with Jesus because what? See, I believe if you're fully experiencing Jesus, if you're being changed, you will live boldly. You can look it up. Every person that God uses, he calls to make bold decisions. Every one of them, every time. And maybe... God's calling you to be like Abraham, to leave everything behind and go to the place that he'll show you. Or maybe he's calling you to be like Moses, to to stand up for God in a really hostile environment. Or maybe like, like David, to challenge that thing that has scared you for a long time. Or maybe like Noah, or Daniel, or Esther, or Ruth, or Paul, or Jane. We could go on and on. You know what the problem with these stories is, don't you? Is that they're they're big and they're dramatic. I mean, Moses is standing before the power of the day. He's standing before Pharaoh. David is killing Goliath. And so these stories look big and dramatic. And our lives can seem so plain and simple. And I understand our, our context is different. I mean, I don't know that any of us will ever run into a king. And I don't know the last time I saw a nine-foot giant. But I believe that Jesus calls all of his followers to be bold. Let's go back to our story. The Sanhedrin has decided that Peter and John's relationship with a resurrected Jesus is the reason for their boldness. And so they decide to call an emergency session, another emergency session, and they have a closed-door meeting. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 16, it says, what are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they performed a notable sign, meaning a miracle. And we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them, meaning Peter and John, they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all, in the name of Jesus. So what would you have done if you were Peter and John in that situation? I think the natural inclination would have been to say, sorry to have bothered you. Thank you very much. Moonwalk out of there. And when you get out the door and you realize you're safe, you say, God's grace has set us free. Praise Jesus. That's the natural reaction. 
When I was a young man, I had a pastor by the name of Tom Ellis. And Tom just has a way of saying things that just brand themselves into my soul. And a few years ago, he said, he had something that I just, I have never been able to get away from. He says, there comes a time in every man's life when he has to prove what he believes by what he does. There comes a time in every man's life when he has to prove what he believes by what he does. And this was that time for Peter and John. They decided that they were all in because Jesus calls his followers to be bold. And this was their response in verse 19 to the mighty Sanhedrin. It said, but Peter and John replied, well, which is right in God's eyes to listen to you or to him, meaning God, you be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, we're not stopping. What so moved Peter and John from being guys that ran when times were tough to one that men that were standing boldly before the Sanhedrin? Even the Sanhedrin knew the answer to that question. They had been with Jesus. Peter and John had experienced a resurrected Jesus and they were fearless. They were bold. Can I tell you a story about a lady that I, a young lady that I met in India several years ago? Her father was paralyzed from the waist down. And I don't know exactly what happened, but he'd been paralyzed for some time. It wasn't like the guy in our story. They paralyzed from birth, but he'd been paralyzed for quite some time. And she'd gone to a doctor to, uh, and spent money trying to get him healed and nothing had worked. And she had given money to the Hindu priests for their blessing and nothing had worked. And she'd done this for some time. She happened to run into a Christian a Jesus follower who probably had not been a Christian for very long at all. And she told him about her father and the whole situation. And this person said, you know, we're having a prayer meeting next week. If you will bring your father to our prayer meeting, we'll pray for him and he'll be healed. You talk about bold. Are you bold like that? Am I bold like that? Now, you know where this story's going. She brings him to the prayer meeting. They pray over him. Two months later, he's walking. Okay? But does your courage show like that man that invited her? Because I believe if you're living transformed lives, it will show. I believe that we will not be afraid to step over the line into the unknown. We'll not be afraid to face fear. We will not be afraid to trust God. And I don't, I don't know what it looks like for you. But if you've been with Jesus, I believe that you will live boldly. Can I tell you about Robert and Lindsay Parvis? Robert called me about 18 months ago and said, uh, I want to talk to you about foster care. He said, I know that there are many children around here that don't have a home. And he said, and honestly, we've got an extra bedroom. In fact, it's so extra 
that we've closed the door to it. We've closed the vents to keep from air conditioning it. And it's just sitting there doing nothing. See, God was tugging at their hearts. But Robert says, you know, I'm such a structure guy and I'm so orderly. I don't know if I can step into the chaos of that world of unknown children and unknown situations and unknown schedules. I don't know. I don't know if I can do it because the system is very chaotic between judges and parents and children and advocates. And sometimes they have competing agendas. The situation can only be described as chaotic. But Robert and Lindsay decided to step over the line. In the last 15 months, they've had nine different foster children living in their home, once three at the same time. Some of them have had emotional issues. Some have had physical issues. But Robert and Lindsay, Robert said, in the time that they live with us, we're committed to show them Jesus. This kind of sacrificial love and patience isn't some sort of manufactured feel-good service to man. This kind of love and patience only comes out of an overflow of somebody that has experienced Jesus, experienced the resurrected Jesus. Robert said, what I've discovered is there's only one place I can put my trust, and that's in God. There comes a time in every man's life when he has to prove what he believes by what he does. You know, and this isn't just a spiritual principle. You know, a a single act of courage can be the tipping point to something extraordinary. A single expression of courage can make the difference. It can start a movement. Rosa Parks, in December of 1955, was asked, she refused to give up her seat at the front of the bus for a white man and moved to the back. And that single act of courage ignited the civil rights movement in the United States. She, in fact, became an international symbol for civil rights. Tiananmen Square in 1989, a single unknown student faced down the entire Chinese army. Nelson Mandela, whose courageous stand ended decades of apartheid in South Africa. See, and here's what's interesting. These individuals didn't know what was going to happen when they chose to be bold. But it started a movement. And you don't know what might happen if you choose to be bold. You don't know what might happen among those that know you, your friends, your neighbors, or maybe your family. When you choose to be bold, you don't know what might be coming. Let me finish with a story. Let me tell you about Cindy Miller. See, Cindy thought she would go on a global adventure with her family to an orphanage in Zambia. But about this time a year ago, she uh, heard a call for women to go on a global adventure to South Asia. And she was gripped with fear. She said, I'm afraid of crime. I'm afraid of leaving my family. I'm afraid of suicide bombers. 
I found out later that in the entire 14-hour flight from here to there, she didn't sleep a wink because she wanted to keep her eye on everybody. She had a fear of being unworthy and inadequate. But what's interesting, she also had a fear of regret. She said, how active is my yes? She said, it kept coming back to me. Am I, am I just a fan of Jesus or am I really a follower of Jesus? Do I trust God enough? And I asked her, I said, what did you learn during this whole experience? She says, I learned two things. The first is I learned to see the world as God sees it because there are people that need to know Jesus. And she got an opportunity to be part of leading the young lady on the right to Jesus. She said, what we've been given is way beyond ourselves. The second thing she said she learned is that spiritual maturity requires surrender. She goes, I learned that I can trust God. I don't have to be fearful. I dare you to find Cindy and ask her how her life has changed over the last 12 months or so. Because what you will find is someone that is living boldly transformed. We go back to the question I asked at the very beginning. Can anyone tell that you're a Jesus follower? Are you living boldly? And I'm not suggesting you have to foster children or go on a global adventure. Maybe your bold move is to walk across the street and introduce yourself to your neighbor. Maybe it's to be outrageously generous. Maybe God is calling you to reconcile a relationship that's broken. You need to write a card, make a phone call, something. Maybe your bold move is to start to commit to starting a family worship time. So look at the end of our story. When Peter and John were released, they found the other believers. And when, as you can imagine, when they showed up, a party broke out and they were praising God and celebrating, but they also had a time of prayer. What do you think they were praying for? Do you think they were praying for security? No. Do you think they were praying for protection? I mean, the Sanhedrin's breathing down our neck like never before, God. Do you think they were praying for protection? No. They were praying for more boldness. Verse 29 says, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered all together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And from this point, the first century church took off. I don't know what will happen if you choose to live transformed, if you choose to live boldly for Jesus. But I do know that you will never experience the full life that God has planned for you 
until you choose to boldly step over that line and into what he's called you to. I'm going to ask our band to come forward and sing over us. And you, if you look at your bulletin, if you've got one, you'll notice a space at the, at the bottom for you to do business with God. What is God calling you to? What bold move is God calling you to? Because the people God uses, he calls to make bold decisions. If you're in that conscious category, if you put yourself there, your bold move may be to say, listen, I don't know. I don't have a personal relationship with this Jesus you're talking about. I don't even know what that looks like. I don't even know how to do that. I'm going to give you an opportunity to have someone pray for you and talk to you. The pastoral team is going to be here down at the front and on the landing. If you want somebody to pray for you, this is your opportunity. Or you may be in that committed category and you've realized now that you've been living on the safe side and that God is calling you to do something bold. Maybe you know what that is. Maybe you don't. But we would love to pray with you about that. So this is your time to reflect as the band sings over us. What is God calling you to boldly do?